But you're saying that you wanted them to be the big bad uglies that are out to uh, take every every kid's every little kid's lunch or something. Oh no no no! I didn't need them to be you know Jafar from a Aladdin, Disney's Aladdin. <laughs> uh, I just needed them to be more interesting. You know, like Sid from Toy Story. He's a very believable bratty boy that just likes to destroy toys. He reminds me of one of my cousins. This is Movie Bite, a show where we discuss, praise, lament, or sometimes even lampoon movies, TV shows, culture, and more. This show is hosted by me. I'm TJ Draper, and I'm joined by my co-host, Joseph Darnell. How are you, Joseph? Doing great. How are you? I am doing well. I'm excited to just dive right in. We're, we're going to skip the, what we normally do and dive right into our review because we're doing two movies today. We both saw yes. two two movies this past week and weekend. Uh, the first one will be Looper, and then the second one will be Trouble with the Curve. Yeah, a double hitter. Double hitter. So uh, no, no baseball terminology, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, here we go. Let's start with Looper. And uh, right. Looper, Joseph, is a film that you and I uh, chatted a little bit about it after I saw it, and you had seen it a couple of days previous, I assume. And uh, I, I chatted with you, and I am a little bit about it. And at first, I, I, was, I didn't think I liked it that much, and I was ready to give it two and a half stars. And, and, uh, but as I've thought about it some more, I've come to appreciate it more. And, and it, what's funny is I definitely liked it more until we got to the end. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to get spoilery yet, but I just want to throw that out there that I I think that the film deserves a second look and a second chance, and you should think about it a little more. Hmm. So interesting. Uh, so let, why don't you, Joseph, uh, dive in uh, for us with some stats on this film? Well, first off, I want to say that we both caught the trailer a couple of months ago, right? Yes. We saw we saw a trailer, and that was really our first exposure. Yep. The trailer intrigued me. You seem to have been excited about it. Um. First impressions, though, I guess before we really talk about the f- the movie specifically, would you say that the movie lived up to your expectations based on the trailer? Um, not at first, uh, and I still don't think they quite lived up to my expectations, but uh, most of the film did. It was really just the ending that I think kind of threw me a little bit, and uh, yeah. I, I I think I was I was really happy with the film until the end. So it's hard. That's such a hard thing to say. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. Okay, because when I saw the trailer, I thought that either the trailer wasn't doing the film justice or this was going to be a flop. Um, That was my personal impression because, you know, it's really hard to pull off a brand new sci-fi that tells a convincing time travel story with uh, significant, you know, name actors and that it came from a relatively unknown director and, you know... The, the fact that it doesn't have a book that it's based after or something like that. So I, I, given it came late in the, uh, you know, it, it missed the summer releases, I just didn't have very high hopes for it. So when I saw the film, I, I can say that I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I was expecting to. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk about the movie. And here are some stats. First, it came out on September 28th this year. So it's still... Uh, hot in theaters. You can catch it now. Catch it on the third week, uh, maybe. So maybe the audiences will uh, have lessened, and you can get a good seat. And the uh, budget for this film, considering it was a live-action uh, sci-fi, fairly sizable budget, but it was also a very modest budget for a sci-fi film. 
all things considered, 30 million bucks. Yeah. It took 30 million smackers to produce the, the looper. And the reason I think about this as being exceptionally modest is considering that there there had to be a great number of special effects in this film. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, we'll get into this maybe more later, but I just recently listened to an interview. Uh, in fact, I finished it today on my drive home from work. Um, I, I finished, finished listening to an interview with Ryan Johnson, and, uh, you know, he talked about, interestingly, some of the way he approached the special effects and... Um, just you know the low budget nature of the film it wasn't picked up by the mainstream by sony until uh they were pretty far through the post-production process uh i find that very interesting so it was really more of an indie film uh of which they had a couple of big names sign on with which i think is probably what got sony's attention uh but you know i mean actually three big names you've got emily blunt you've got uh bruce willis and joseph gordon levitt so um yeah it's very kind of interesting hmm Okay, so then opening weekend, it made $20 million back, which is very decent. But since then, the second weekend, it didn't do as well. It's only got up to $22 million. So they haven't made their money back yet, but I'm sure they will. It just won't probably be the uh, you know astounding success that the major studio was hoping for. Probably not. Which is, which is somewhat in contrast to the fact that this movie has exceptionally high viewer ratings from critics and, and audiences. Yeah, that is interesting. That is very interesting. Here you have a movie that seems to really please the viewers, and it may just barely make it even. So, I don't know. Maybe people are just not in the movie, uh, you know, the mood right now and the change of seasons to go to the movies. But if you do, people, um, we're going to talk about Looper for, for, for your further consideration. Yeah. Well, let me let me give you the synopsis here. Um, and this, uh, I don't believe this would be really spoilerific. I mean, because it is a synopsis that you would read even before you went and saw the film. Uh, in the future uh, of Looper, time travel will be invented, but it will be illegal and only available on the black market. When the mob wants to get rid of someone, they will send their target 30 years into the past where a looper, a hired gun, like Joe, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, is waiting to mop up. Joe is getting rich and life is good until the day the mob decides to close the loop, sending back Joe's future self, Bruce Willis, for assassination. To be honest, watching the trailer, I didn't understand half of the storyline. Hmm. When I read it, though, before going into the film, I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty clever. So, you know, well, I'm not saying the trailer didn't do it any justice. It looked interesting, but I just thought that, it, you know, wow. When I actually saw the film, I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm getting into this. I'm not sure what's wrong with you because I completely got that from the trailer. So, hmm. I think it's just you. Okay. <laughs> well, wow, I'm wrong for once. <laughs> <laughs> just once, though, right? Yeah, just this once. Okay. Okay, so what did you like about the movie? Um, I I really felt that the uh, acting was exceptional. I you know even though I said earlier that Emily Blunt was a well known name, I've never seen her in anything, and don't know that I'd heard of her before I saw that she was in this film. Mm, um, really, really. But she, I've really enjoyed Emily Blunt in a few other films. She I I felt like she played her part exceptionally well, uh, and not knowing who she was, that was that was good. Um, she she displayed uh, appropriate emotions. I thought. Um, this could get a little spoilery here. Why don't we just say we're gonna we're gonna spoil it? If you haven't seen this film, go see it and then come back and listen. Um, I, I felt her reactions and her emotion, given her part in the story with Sid, was uh, quite well done. 
Um, she was appropriately, I mean, I believe she was frightened, you know, when Sid, uh, you know, would get angry. And, and here uh, we got into some rather complex emotions for a mother that has good reason to believe, you know, I think that every mother, parent, you know, father thinks through these things. They consider the possibility that they're raising a child that has some very scary inner demons. Yes. Um, and you know, it's just human nature, you know, naturally we can, uh, we can speculate, but we can never know. Uh, you know, you have one child that seems to be the perfect little angel, and here you have another one that just seems to be, well, like, possessed in a bad way. And you got to wonder, <laughs> are your children ever going to make it? You know, are they ever going to, you know, come around? And, you know, who knows? I think that every situation under the sun has possibly happened. But in this particular case, this mother has very good reason to believe that her son is going to be the villain. And she has a very challenging situation. She has to decide, well, what do I do that? You know, she rises to the occasion and she thinks, okay, well, I can make him a better man. Maybe because I know this going into rearing him, I can make a positive impact on his life. And that's very noble. And I think that's what a, a mother that loves her child would do. But it, I just thought that that was very well executed so that you you didn't... You didn't dislike the mother. No, not at all. For, for making a choice to raise this child that I think was the wrong choice. Right. I feel like this film did a really great job, actually, in making me feel really conflicted about everything that was going on. I liked Emily Blunt as the mother. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her name in the in the movie at the moment. Um, but I, I liked her as the mother, and I felt for her. And I even felt for Sid, to some extent, once I started learning more of the nuances of what was going on. But at the same time, I also felt for Bruce Willis's character of Joe, the later the uh, Joe from the future, who is essentially yeah. fighting uh, to save his wife and, 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 as he considers, the future, because he understands, and, and, and as we get into in the plot, three, there's three possible people who become the Rainmaker, and uh, so he he's trying to, and so he's going to kill all three of these kids so that that doesn't happen, so that the future doesn't unfold the way it did. And as we know now, Sid was the horrible uh, kid who grew up to be the rainmaker and did some nasty things, killed his wife, and and was closing all the loops. Um, and so we we kind of feel at least toward the even through the middle of the film, we feel for Joe as Bruce Willis, and so we we kind of have conflicted emotions. I think the film does a remarkable job of making us feel conflicted about this, what's going on. You know, that's probably one of the strongest points about this sci-fi action film, because uh, you're talking about acting and complex characters here. And while I didn't always agree with the characters' personal decisions, in fact, I can't say that once I agreed with the course of action the characters uh, you know, chose to take. Right. But, but the thing was... I acknowledged that I could really see why they chose that route, given their current situation. And it really helped to create some dynamic characters along the way. I sympathized with their mistakes. And um, and you're talking about um, older Joe, which was played by Bruce Willis. Right. Something that's unique about older Joe is that he tends to be the kind of guy who says, I don't know what is right. But I'm just looking for an excuse to do what I want to do. And when he gets the opportunity to save his future wife, he says, well, the way I'm going to do that is by killing off this 
heinous man, this person who's going to ruin society. In the past, I'm going to pre, you know, I'm going to stop the crime uh, preemptively. And so he is sort of in a uh, minority report type fashion. He 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 is taking the law into his own hands big time. Right. Because he's got he's got history in the making against him. Whereas younger Joe, he tends to acknowledge I under, you know, from his t- point of view, he understands what he wants, but he isn't willing to make the tough choices. So it's remarkable how they decided to wrap up the end of the film. That's just one spoiler I don't want to expose because what they finally did with young Joe and older Joe at the climax, I, to be honest, it's one of the reasons why I think is it's as good as it was because I really didn't expect what they did there at the end of the climax. No, I didn't either. And that, that's at first. Uh, I don't see how we can talk about this without spoiling it, Joe, and I do want to talk about it. So, again, you have been duly warned we're going to spoil this thing. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, we, we're going to assume that people have watched this movie, Joe. But I guess the reason I say that is because I've already spoiled it for a few friends I was talking about the movie with. And I was, like, trying my best not to spoil it for them. And then I tell them essentially what happens at the end of the movie because I was looking for their opinions as to – you know what they thought about the uh, some of the loopholes I think that are present, and they gave me their opinions. But then they said, "Well, thanks a lot. Now you've ruined it for me." And I was like, "I'm sorry, but I needed to know what you thought you think before yeah. I do this podcast." Well, again, we're we're duly warning people, and once more, you have been warned. I'm about to spoil the end right here, right now. And to um, be honest, I don't think that this is a film. Well, I, I typically think this about spoilers, I, but this is a film where I really do think that. Spoilers or no spoilers, this film is still enjoyable. Agreed. It's kind of like being told, you know, hey, don't spoil Indiana Jones for me. But you know the guy's going to survive because there's, you know, three sequels, right? Of course. You've never seen (laughs) it. You don't need to worry about avoiding spoilers with your friends. Right, right, right. Okay, so this is the part that I probably had the most trouble with because I wasn't expecting it to end this way. And because I always want, here we go with a spoiler, I always want the hero to survive. It's like an instinct within me, um, I, I guess. And and when he died, when he killed himself to to just to end the the loop and, and his future self doing the heinous things that he was doing, it was very self-sacrificial. So it wasn't, I, I don't consider it a suicide per se, um, but... At first, that's the way I was considering. It's like, hey, did the guy just committed suicide? And what is what are we saying? That suicide is the way to cure this problem? And and so at first, that was my take on why. And, and you may have saw that I tweeted and I uh, Facebooked and, and kind of in my uh, in my crushed hopes and dreams for the film, which was so good up until that happened, I thought, that I was like, oh, man, I, I just, wow. I, I think it just, it, I think I said, uh this is a film that the ending makes or breaks it, and the ending broke it. <laughs> hmm. But um, a good friend of mine, uh, Michael, he he sent me, actually, after he saw me post that, he sent me a message, a private message on Facebook detailing why he loved it, and upon reflection and consideration, was such a great film. And it really is a, because of the self-sacrifice that is taken, that he, his, he can see that his future self from the loop is about to commit this heinous crime against everything that he's been fighting to protect as his younger self. 
and he suddenly, in, an, in a moment of clarity, sees what's about to happen. He's about to kill Sid's mother. Sid's going to escape and become the Rainmaker, and he changed the rules, as as the voiceover says, and he, he sacrificed himself to prevent that horrible, heinous future. Yeah, I would, I would view it as sacrifice versus uh, suicide, because after all, it was self-evident that well, I mean, it happens in real life. You know, troops go into battle and they got to be aware that sometimes in the line of duty, they could save their life or they could lay it down to save the life of, lives of others. In this particular case, he's laying down his life for two specific people, the mother of the child and the child. So he has to die given the situation in order to spare their lives. Exactly. I, I, and you know what? It's funny that you should mention that because... It is a very unique characteristic. This is the only time I can think of where killing oneself and causing the end of all your ability to create action actually solves the problem. Well, I, you know what I mean? This, that was kind of cool. Yes, in a way. I mean, and I suppose what you're saying is, is it choosing is to end your own life as opposed to... Uh, um, laying down your life there's you there's a difference and and i've come to see this as him laying down his life now that does open up a whole can of worms you can talk about the moral ambiguity created by a uh something that's not even possible which is time travel yeah and you can see right. why uh that that's just not it's it's just doesn't work um and 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 it's not even something that we would want to consider morally i don't think well if time travel were possible would it be okay to go back and kill a a kid who you knew was going to grow, grow up to be uh this monster you, you know and and the, i think the film though it's a moral question we don't need to ask does answer it correctly and the answer is no it's not okay <laughs> yeah well real quick i, I don't want to say much more about our likes and personally in my in my side of things I, I i think that we've said it uh fairly well and i would be in agreement with you uh and for the most part the one dislike here though i need to address is that um, as a sci-fi fan that really appreciates a sci-fi that works out the complexities of physics and time travel to make sure that they're consistent with, um, generally speaking, accepted norms of time travel and don't break from the accepted norms, uh, this film, in my opinion, breaks from those accepted norms in sci-fi. Um, I since we are delving into spoiler um, subjects, I, I guess I can just say it. Look, I mean, if your older self comes to the past, he is going to be inadvertently changing the past. Of course. Which, in our context, is the present. When we talk about the past, we're actually talking about the present. So if your future self comes to the present and he starts doing things, he's changing the present. And that means that as people react to your future self in the present... It, like they do in this movie where they start chopping off limbs of a person and stuff like that. Or let's say again, with the case of young Joe, old Joe, when young Joe decides to shoot himself, it's because he wants to fix the problem of saving people, innocent people's lives by, by wiping his future self from that moment in history. But the thing is, if future self doesn't exist at that moment in the first place, then young Joe has no motivation to shoot himself. So now you have a, you have a break in this, in the time continuum. 
Because how does time repair itself? How does it know which route of the future to choose? Young Joe would have never shot himself. Therefore, old Joe reappears. But if he reappears, young Joe shoots himself. So there's no way to sort out the histories. Right. My my favorite paradigm, and, and one personally as a as a Christian, that I believe if time travel travel were possible, if it were discovered how to do it, I believe there is only one timeline. There is only one thing that ever happens. And I so so while I hate the movie Twelve Monkeys, my view of time travel would would be right along with that paradigm, which is what happened has happened and will happen. And if you go back into the past, then you were already a part of that past. There's only one continuity. That would be that's my favorite uh, time travel paradigm. And one, I get. I guess ultimately, though, what they're what they're doing by it is they're taking the approach that any given person who wields um, time and is able to break from the time continuum, it's like time itself is now led by that person's actions. Right, and it's called. I mean, it's often referred to as time paradox when you're dealing with time travel movies. Um, yeah, you know. You, but in which case, I honestly think that the the Back to the Future films did a better job of maintaining consistencies. Yeah, perhaps we we can get to that in a minute. Um, yeah, th- this definitely. I wanted to I wanted to just point out a couple of my, this because because Looper I enjoyed it a lot. It's not my favorite time travel paradigm because it does deal with multiple possible conclusions being affected by the future selves and the past selves, and so there's not one continuing history being affected. Whereas, um, Twelve Monkeys is a good example, though I don't recommend the film because it's a horrible film in my opinion. Uh, have you seen that film, Joseph? Twelve Monkeys? Yes. Is it a remake of Twelve Little Indians? I don't think so. Mm. Uh, it's a time travel movie, and it has Bruce Willis in it, actually. Mm. Um, mm. I, it, I I hated the movie. But its its theory of time travel is my favorite. Another great example of this is uh, the third Harry Potter movie, or even better, the third Harry Potter book, which uh, Harry... Uh, affected things in the went back into the past and affected things but then we saw how it tied together how earlier in the book we could tell oh this is where Harry was and affected it at this point so it was all one continuous timeline that was already put into play by things Harry went into the past and did that this movie's not like that so it obviously I think is going to have time paradoxes which is what you're referring to which makes the story weak by the way, can you tell I love talking about time travel stuff? <laughs> oh, dude, don't get me started. Um, that that was the way my wife met me. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it was it was horrible. Uh, she thought I was straight out of the bang, Big Bang Theory. It was just, it was just <laughs> awful. Um, so anyway, I won't belabor this too much more. But yeah, th- this definitely deals with time paradoxes, and it does make the film a little weaker, I think, because there are things that are just simply not possible, like you're saying. If yeah, your, your exact scenario is what's created when you deal. I, I I do not think it's possible to avoid time paradoxes when you go with this theory of time travel that you can change what happened. There there have been actually some television shows I thought that did uh, time travel, space time continuum stuff better justice by just saying you know what if you went back in time and you tried to kill somebody who was responsible for any events at all then you would probably shatter time itself. Like, it wouldn't know how to, I mean, theoretically, because it's all based on natural processes. The fact that you have jumped time, 
how would it even know how to process two simultaneously accurate <laughs> histories? Well, obviously, Joseph. It would you, not be possible. Obviously, Joseph, you haven't watched enough Star Trek. This is the multiverse theory, man. <laughs> oh, right. Well, okay. Now we're talking source code because with that explanation, you're saying that anytime you, uh, someone changes the course of history, they're actually creating a fork in the road where now two dimensions exist. Yeah, And I, I think I can actually appreciate the uh, multiverse a little bit better than I can one continuous universe that just, you know, uh, <laughs> somehow see, fixes things I, that don't I make any sense. I always find it, I always frustrated me in Star Trek because I find it to be a cop-out. It is a cop-out, but if you take the assumption that there can be infinite universes, then in infinite universes, um, the idea that you can alter history and somehow it all works out on, uh, for itself... It stands to reason that that's a possibility in some of our own. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we you know I have one more thing in my like column before we get to my dislikes. Um, you've already delved into your dislikes a little bit, um, and that was this: the first time I saw Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, in the field when he was uh, uh, killing someone, uh, I noticed his face looked a little different than what we've seen him look like before, and I thought that's strange. And then I did a little research. I, I didn't. I forgot it after that. And then I thought to myself later in the film, it was it's a, it's remarkable how much uh, Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt look alike. That, and I didn't realize that they did. Well, it turns out they don't. Um, the, the, it, it turns out that they don't look alike. They actually use some prosthetic makeup on Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And so now, I actually thought that they did a great job with his uh, his nose and, I guess, a uh, facial structure. Yes, agreed. Yeah. I was very impressed with that, actually. You know, it's a challenge whenever you add that many prosthetics to the forehead and nose arch that you lo- the actor loses his ability to make expressions. And even so, you know, you noticed that older Bruce Willis, you know, playing Joe, actually had more expression than young, well, you know, Joe. <laughs> I, I noticed that. Huh. But even so, he looked, he looked a good resemblance. Yeah. All right, so my dislikes, and, and really, uh, really, there's just one right now. Uh, it, it was going to be the suicide issue, but now there's just one because I, I, like I said, I had I, rem- I, I like this film remarkably well up until the very end, and that was this. As I think back about it, there's basically three time uh, uh, timelines that took place. Your first timeline, you have Sid, the rainmaker, who uh, it, you know kind of messes everything up. His loop is, and and he, you know, he's taking over the world, and he sends uh, Joe back to be killed by himself to close the loop, which happens. But then, so now that's altered history a little bit, right? As we as we talked about, so this you're right. You're actually by by taking anyone and sending them into the past, they are altering the courses of history. Right, and that's probably the you know killing them right away. The, the I think the science or the the theory here is that killing them as soon as they appear uh, does the least amount of damage to the timeline, but but it changed it just enough so that Joe now in this in this timeline that we've created by sending him back and getting killed, this version of Joe now uh, changes just a little bit so that he's able to uh, hit, when his wife is killed. He kills. Uh, he he breaks free and then still goes back in time and avoids being killed by his old self. So this creates now our third timeline. 
And so that's the primary timeline the story takes place in. Now here's here's where, and I had to explain that to make for this to make sense. Here is where I find a little bit of trouble with the plot. And this, you know, it sounds like you have more issues with the plot than I do. What motivated Sid to be the rainmaker, uh, ascending to power and causing all this trouble the first time around? Because the the idea here in the self sacrifice is that because Joe kills the rain, uh, Sid's mother, he is motivated to become the Rainmaker. Well, if you want to talk about paradoxes, um, my my impression, though it wasn't ever discussed in the film or or described or alluded to, because I'm because I'm just so used to typical Hollywood film conventionalities, I th- I figured the explanation there was that Sid is just a bad kid. That, you know, in spite of everybody's efforts to, you know, intervene in his life, he is just made of bad stuff. And destiny would have it that no matter what intervention you try to make, he's going to be the Rainmaker. So even in spite of Joe's, young Joe's efforts to save his life, um, I think the Rainmaker would have happened in any case. Because, after all... It's one of those paradox, uh, paradoxes. I think that films in general recognize that both free will and destiny appear to exist, appear to coexist. And I think that this whole idea of free will comes into play big time when you have time travelers that are ready and able to change the course of history. Because they're taking, um, they're taking history into their own hands. Leastways, that that's, that's how they perceive it. So they perceive that free will trumps destiny. Yeah. But it's it's interesting complications. Yeah, but what I'm referring to here, though, is a little more... Um, I guess you touched on it a little bit. But the, the, the movie ultimately winds up that the reason Sid doesn't... We assume the reason Sid doesn't grow up to become the Rainmaker is because uh, Joe sacrificed himself so that his future self would not kill Sid's mother. But that didn't happen in the first timeline. Sid's mother, as we we could assume, uh, was alive and well, and yet he became the Rainmaker. So that, that that's a little bit troubling to me. It's like, well, uh, your option is A, because we don't see exactly what happened. We just assume. We're, I, we're meant to assume that Sid didn't grow up to become the Rainmaker because of the sacrifice. But we can assume A, it had no effect and it was pointless. Or B, that it's, it's just a major plot hole. <laughs> and I'm going with major plot hole. <laughs> Yeah, I have to agree with you. And even so, I guess if I just had to sum up like my thoughts about the film, I'd say that in spite of the plot holes, it still makes for a very fun story. It's one of those cases like there's no explanation for why Superman is able to fly. The the you know, sci-fi just assumes a man can fly. Let's just accept that. We'll never ever ever try to explain this. Well, except but Superman's he not a man. But anyway, <laughs> Well, well, no. I mean, he is—he is physical. He—he he has a body, okay. and he doesn't just, have wings. Just, just clarifying what you meant there. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so we, you, you get my my drift. Though. I do. It's just something that you have to entirely accept in the convention that sci-fi, in and of itself, is a sim is a, it's a form of fantasy. So, what would you rate this film, Joseph? If you you were writing the review, uh, which... it's a, it's a I'm splitting hairs here, but it's and it's a little hard to say, but I'd probably give it three stars out of five stars. Okay. Um, I, like I said, I, I was ready to give it, uh, two and a half and I've come around, I'm thinking three or three and a half. I, I'm not ready to be pinned down on it. 
Uh, so I'm in yeah, that I'd same like ballpark. Yeah, I'd like to chew on it some more too. Um, but I, if I if I had to go on the record, I'd give it three out of five. Okay. Now, um, I, I do want to mention that our first user contributed review uh, was done on this film. Neither you nor I wrote the review on Movie Byte uh, for this uh, film, but uh, Corey Poff did, and he rated it five stars. He really loved it, and I've noticed that he was looking forward to it uh, for quite some time. Uh, when I've seen interacted with him online and that sort of thing. So I highly recommend that. That'll be in the show notes. Show notes, by the way, are at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 12, because this is our 12th episode, and that will be yeah, in the I show th- notes. I think that a movie like Looper definitely has its target audience. I'm probably not in the target audience, and I think that Corey probably is. Yeah. So a movie like this really works for its target audience, and that's a show of success, and probably another reason why it seems to have done so well with critics and audience, you know, people alike. Yeah. Because, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, you got critics giving it a 74, sorry, 94, and audiences giving it a 90. That's pretty good. Yeah, it is. And and I see the thing the difference between you and me is I feel like I was in the target audience. This I uh, and and I I really love the film and uh you know, through most of it. So maybe I should think about more of a four star. I don't know because I have come around to accepting the ending. Uh, well, I'd, do you do you reckon you'll watch it again and you know I will, actually I'll, I'll probably give it, it a year or so, but I probably will watch it again. So um, oh, okay, yeah, I maybe I should think about upping my rating. I do just want to mention this too. Um, I actually uh, there's a new uh, show on Five by Five, the Five by Five Network, uh, called Screen Time, and I've been listening to it. And uh, Screen Time episode five, uh, they had Ryan Johnson on for an interview, who's the director. And uh, I avoided it because I figured there would be spoilers uh, for Looper. And I don't think there was, but I avoided it anyway and waited until after I'd seen Looper. And then then Ryan Johnson was back on for episode seven. And then he also got very spoilerific in the uh, 5x5 After Dark. Uh, and all these links will be in the show notes for those three uh, audio podcasts. And I, I do recommend them. They were really good. Hmm. We love audio podcasts. We do. In fact, I'm behind right now, but uh, it's because I have too many podcasts, not because I don't listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot more podcasts that I listen to than TV shows that I watch. Yeah. All right. I think we're ready to move on to Trouble with the Curve. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Let's do this thing. Okay. So Trouble with the Curve opened on uh, September the 21st. Uh, interestingly, uh, I was trying to find budget information for this film. I looked high and low. It is not available. It is simply not that nobody, they're not releasing the budget for this film. So we don't know what it costs to make. But you know, I find that peculiar. It, it's not like Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers Pictures makes a habit of not sharing that information. Yeah, it is strange. But you're right. They just didn't. Yeah, I looked, I looked everywhere. Of course, starting with Box Office Mojo, not available. IMDb, not available. Rotten Tomatoes, not available. Google, I Googled it and I just couldn't find it. It just wasn't around. It's just not available. Can you, can you imagine why they would be um, apprehensive to share that information? I cannot. Maybe they're, maybe unless they're ashamed of, because you and I were talking before the show, Joseph, about how this movie, while we both liked it, it can't have cost that much to make. And maybe they're ashamed of how much they actually did spend on it. I don't know. <laughs> It, it, oh, okay. I can see your point there. It it could have been it could have been tough to get Clint Eastwood, and considering his performance, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. But you know, he's it's one of those things where uh, the guy doesn't have that many more films left he can make in his lifetime, and I imagine much like Marlon Brando, he could he could go at a pretty penny late, this late in life. Oh, I'm he sure could, he could. He could yes. really charge high. So now this film opened. Uh, I mean, it it opened at twelve million. Uh, not. Great, but not bad. I didn't think. 
on online, you know, some reviews that I researched uh, will disagree with me. I and for a film of this caliber, I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, because no, it's, you actually pointed that out to me. I wasn't aware of, but a lot of critics aren't too crazy about the film, and they they, as you said, they ca- they're calling this a flop. Yeah, and I think that's a little bit uh, strange to do without budget information, but uh, uh, that's that's ludicrous. Yeah. It, it seems like uh, it seems like somebody has a vendetta. They they just don't like Clint Eastwood or Amy Adams or or Justin Timberlake or or baseball or something. Yeah, I, I can I can sympathize with the Justin Timberlake, but um, I wonder too how much <laughs> how much it affects this movie that the whole Clint Eastwood debacle went down with him interviewing the empty chair and his conservative politics, and I wonder how much that affects. The oh, critics right. and reviews. I I don't know. I, I I can't pretend to know to what effect that has, but uh, it may very well. Now, right now, it's sitting at twenty three million worldwide. Well, you know, you're probably onto something there. I I don't want to drag politics into the discussion, but you you're absolutely right. Um, Hollywood can be pretty harsh on conservatives, and so, um, it it happens time and time again that if conservatives make a stance and they are you know, influential in Hollywood and in the limelight of uh, the media that, you know, the liberals will just, you know, make their life a little bit more difficult. And it can be that they control media outlets and, you know, if they don't want them to get a lot of, you know, praise or money or to further their developing career, then they'll they'll burn them a little bit. Yeah. And well, there you go. I mean, but anyway, who knows? Like you said, we don't really have any good information there. Um, so, okay. So you want to talk a little bit more about the director? Do you know anything about Robert Lawrence? I don't, I I've never heard of him before. Have you? Uh, no, the name does not sound familiar. And it's another one of those situations where you're kind of like, now what has he done again? And as it turns out, he is well, well regarded. He has done some other influential films. Uh, he is known for, uh, letters to, uh, f- sorry, letters from Iwo Jima. And I haven't seen that one, but some people have told me I should really see it. Uh, there's also Mystic River, and it got very high ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm not too familiar with it. But then two other f- films that are highly regarded. There's uh, Grand Torino with Clint Eastwood that was just uh, released a few years ago. Now, um, Joseph, I have to ask, you saying he directed these films? Uh I believe so. That, that that IMDb is telling me he's only directed one film, and it's Trouble with the Curve. He's been a second unit director on some films. Really? Yes. Huh. That's interesting, the way that these different websites present information. Okay, because maybe these are just films he's been a part of, but then IMDb is making it clear what his role in the film was. Yeah, because I'm on IMDb now, I, I, I've seen IMDb, IMDb be wrong about stuff. But uh, it's well, I've seen him. Rotten Tomatoes be wrong too. Yeah, it's listing him as second unit director on a lot of stuff. It's listing him as producer on a few titles, including Letters to Iwo Jima, and uh, yeah, and one one directorial title here. So huh. it looks, yeah, he was a producer of some of those titles you mentioned. Okay, well, I guess he can't take credit for him then. Sorry, my bad. But uh, he at least ways was uh, you know in a part of them. <laughs> yeah, well, producer's not a small role. So. No, absolutely not. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, like, after all, that's mostly what, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg, he's primarily a producer now. Especially these days, yes. The other significant film that he was involved in, uh, in one shape or form, was um, 
He was a part of Invictus, starring uh, Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon. Did you see that film? I did not. Well, the reason I just wanted to mention these, what I, the point I was going to get to, was that Robert Lawrence tends towards traditional, interesting dramas as a genre. Mm. He he folk his takes it. He doesn't do chick films. He doesn't do sci fi's. He doesn't do action flicks. He does drama, and so given his track record, there's no surprise really that he took on this film or that he was working with Clint Eastwood. So I think that while he is a budding director, that um, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna follow his career. I'm I'm gonna pay attention to this Robert Lawrence because um, th- drama is something of not a a dead genre, but it, it seems like in these days, it's hard to come by a good one. And I, I really care about the drama as a genre. And in many respects, it's my favorite genre. Agreed. But it doesn't seem to be what audiences um, buy tickets for anymore. Yeah. I, and, and you can kind of see that. I mean, the audiences, I, I was going to mention at some point that I think the reason that this film, the, the opening weekend was only 12 million was because it's not an action film. And people nowadays, they really want action films. But I greatly appreciated uh, this film as a drama. I, I didn't need the action. It was a great film and without that. So, Joseph, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the storyline? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Because, um, yeah, Trouble with the Curve. Um, maybe you won't see this film, but if you're going to take your pick between Looper and Trouble with the Curve, I suggest that you get familiar with this one before you make a choice. So here's the story. There's a guy named Gus Lobel, who's played by Clint Eastwood, and he has been one of the best scouts in baseball for decades. But despite his efforts to hide it, age is starting to catch up with him. And nevertheless, Gus, who can tell a pitch just by the sound of the crack of the bat, refuses to be benched for what may be the final, quote, end innings of his career. Uh, He may not have a choice, though. Uh, The front office of the Atlanta Braves, for whom he works for, is starting to question his judgment, and especially with the country's hottest batting prospect on deck for the draft, you know, Gus isn't too crazy about this particular pick, and the, the Braves' offices are questioning his judgment. The one person who might be able to help him is also the one person Gus would rather not ask, and that is his daughter, Mickey, played by Amy Adams. An associate at a high-powered Atlanta law firm, that is Mickey, who's uh, very, you know, got a great drive and has all this ambition and is trying to further her career, and uh, she's on track to become a partner in this very prestigious law, law firm, and um, and so the, and so she's you know this uh, city city folk, whereas Gus you know he's more of a baseball guy and he lives in the suburbs. So um, against her better judgment, though, Mickey the daughter and, uh, decides to work with Gus one last time on his uh, scouting trip. And so Mickey joins him on the scouting trip. They take to North Carolina. And along the way, it's uh, putting her career in jeopardy, and there's really no telling whether or not she's going to have a positive influence on Gus's uh, situation either. So it's a family epic. It's a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, the culmination, the cross of the Rubicon for the Lobel family. Yeah. I, Joseph, I really enjoyed this film. I would say, even still, even despite my coming to grips with uh, Looper, I would say that this is just a notch above Looper uh, because it's been a long time since we've had a good drama, I think. Can you think of any good dramas lately that have been in the theater? 
Uh, yeah, but typically they have a uh, strong leaning towards something that's interesting in society, like sports. Uh, and so I think that they use things like sports as a crutch oftentimes in the place of having other um, sensational qualities like, you know, action or sci-fi elements. Right. Even so, uh, that said, I think that the you know trouble with the curve doesn't take advantage of a sport you know um, a, a couple other examples of this to some degree i believe that blindside which was a very popular film very successful it's a drama that takes advantage of football it uh it's a very good dr- uh, drama but at the same time it's a little bit of a family film you know right so it's not too serious but i believe that they they kind of hijack uh, athletics and they they don't really represent um football as a sophisticated business as it is they kind of they kind of you know bring it in as a superficial shallow thing and yeah. you know but but you know football's a big deal and i appreciate it when a film deals with a sport intelligently so another example of a film that does this is moneyball and I think that much more like Moneyball, Trouble with a Curve is very respectful towards the sport baseball. And it deals with it in some very intelligent ways. So that you get the picture that these filmmakers, the storytellers, they actually know a few things about baseball as it relates to the story and the whole of well historical events real real baseball stats things that have actually happened yeah and they're consistent with the real business now with that being said uh joseph i think you're more of a sports fan or certainly a baseball fan than i am uh i've been to a baseball game or two i i though traditionally don't like sports uh famously in my family and amongst my peers uh i can't stand watching sports on tv uh i don't necessarily like going to games of any kind whether it be baseball or basketball or football or soccer or whatever i don't care for it but um i don't mind a sports movie as long as sports is not the focus and there's been a few uh and this is one of them where sports sure if, if you like baseball you will like this movie but this movie's not about baseball. Baseball is there and part of it. But this movie, this film is about the relationship between Gus and Mickey. And it's it's just great drama and, and great storytelling. Uh, and it's a great story of reconciliation. And that is what I like about this film. Uh, and as you're saying, it sounds like they got the baseball stuff right. And that's a, that's a good point in its favor, too. Okay, that that that's helpful to know because I I was wondering if my partiality towards baseball would just kind of skew my perspective a bit, and so I didn't trust that this was actually as good a drama as all that because, you know, after all, I'm half of the time wondering now, you know, was that baseball statistic and uh, historical fact about baseball actually true? Is that was that correct? And I look it up real quick and I'm like, okay, okay, they got that one right. Yeah, see, <laughs> and, and I didn't, I couldn't have cared less was not possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I baseball is in my blood. So, 
I'm sure that if I was bit by a vampire, I'd turn into Babe Ruth or something. It just, <laughs> you know, to me, baseball is a big deal. And so I could really relate to those in the film that really cared about, about baseball in the game and outside the game, watching the game, uh, thinking about it professionally. My dad, for a moment of time in his, you know, his college history, he pursued a baseball career. And that didn't flesh out, but then he passed that on to me. And so I really appreciate the family leg- legacy aspect of the of the drama here, because um, typically our interest in sports is handed down to us from our parents. Mm. Um, and in my dad's case, he, he reared me on watching uh, the Atlanta Braves. So like the, the movie is somewhat addressing. And I always took a fascination in how the minor leagues worked and uh, how scouting worked. And I I followed the careers of Chipper Jones and uh, going all the way back to, oh, I'm I'm pretty sure I have one of his minor league cards. Um, So, so yeah, I mean, just to give you a picture, I I cared deeply about how they represented baseball. Yeah. Uh, So you sounds like you like the film. Yeah, you know, I wrote a review, and I think I'm being honest when I say that I'll watch it again. And I would give it three and a half out of five stars. But when I say it's three and a half, those are well-deserved, and my partiality says, you know what? Um, Forget about trying to be objective. I honestly think that I'll watch this movie a few more times in the next couple of years, and I'll recommend it to family and friends. Yeah, I I would go for four stars, I think, because I I really enjoyed it, and I'm not a baseball guy. Uh, You know, uh, a couple of other things that I liked. um, I have not yet disliked anything that I saw Amy Adams in. She's a fantastic actress, and uh, just... I just don't know what else to say. She's just a fantastic actress. I also enjoyed the humanity of the characters a lot. Uh, and, and, and that was maybe part of my dislikes, which I'll get into in a minute with Eastwood's grouchy old man routine, but really for the most part, it worked for the, for the film. Um, and, and they didn't, they didn't, uh, yeah, it was, the the characters are very human and you could relate to what was going on. And I, I enjoyed that, uh, a lot. I don't know if you had any, uh, feeling on that, but. Um, well, uh, to be honest, that was something that I thought about when I was watching the movie, I was sitting there and after watching Looper, I watched Looper and then I watched uh, trouble with the curve right afterwards. And I thought to myself, man, the dialogue sounds, oh, so natural compared to Looper. <laughs> the Loopers was good. I'm not sliding it, but, uh, trouble with the curve was just so natural that I, I had for, I, I mean, if I wasn't thinking of it because I was after all trying to write a review for this, I would have easily forgotten that these lines were written for these characters. Yeah. Sometimes and, and I it- wasn't crazy about their execution, but um, that was a minor dislike. All in all, I, I really preferred the writing in this film. Yeah, and, and actually that is saying something. It's interesting. I think we've talked about this before. It's interesting how unnatural it really is to make n- natural dialogue in a film. <laughs> and this is a dialogue-heavy film. Oh, it's, it's dialogue-driven. It's all dialogue-driven, very much. Um, you want to talk a little bit about what we didn't like about this film or what you felt like didn't work? Uh, well, it boils down to... I thought that the little side romance between um, Mickey and the character Johnny, played by Justin Timberlake, wasn't well-developed enough. Like, there was a few moments where it felt like it worked, but I felt Johnny was taking 
he was kind of trying to force it. Like, there was really no reason why he should especially try to make a relationship out of nothing. Agreed. And then uh, Mickey's character was resistant to Johnny to a fault. She was trying to avoid him at all costs, and then when she decides to like him, it's still very inconvenient for her career. So I wasn't convinced that she'd be willing to um, jump ship of her career, which she was, you know, working around the clock for, even at that time of the story where she was losing sleep over it, to pursue a relationship with this guy, Johnny. Right. Especially seeing as how she also had another boyfriend. You know, things like that just didn't add up. Yes, you're, you're completely correct. Um, whereas I, and, and the central two figures of the story, obviously, are Gus and Mickey, and that relationship worked very well and had a very natural pace, and the reconciliation was very believable, yet, at, by the same token, and why we put it as a dislike is because they did not spend enough time explaining to us or developing the relationship between Johnny and Mickey. It just didn't work uh, on any level. And that's compounded by the fact that I don't I don't think Timberlake was very good at all in this film. I've never seen, I don't know if he's acted anything else. I, I, I know somewhere out on the cusp of my mind that he's a uh, pop singer or something. Um, I've seen him in a couple other films, and where he really hit it big and a good, uh, well, in his performance was in the movie The Social Network about the founding uh, of yeah. Facebook. He did a brilliant performance there. He really did. And unfortunately, that set off his career. Okay. I think that people have faith that he can he can create the same sort of interest in a character uh, as he did there. And I've seen him in, oh... At least two other films besides The Social Network and Trouble with the Curve. And I wasn't crazy about his performances in those either, to be honest. One of them was just a very, very, very um, pathetic sci-fi that didn't work. And, and in the other one, it was just a lame chick flick. And honestly, it was like the excuse to make that chick flick was the star power. <laughs> Having Justin Timberlake in it was why this chick flick existed. Right. And, and so for for Trouble with the Curve... I guess that the finer qualities of this film were those that didn't feel like a chick flick and those qualities that didn't live up to the story were those qualities that felt like a chick flick. Yeah. Well, and it's now, it's, I'm, I, and not to say that all chick flicks are bad. No, I'm, not by I'm any means. I'm not dissing chick flicks. No, not by any means. Uh, and fact, when I say that, I I kind of respect them as a genre and un, unto themselves. So yeah, and in fact, when we talk about, just talking about chick flicks, one film that my wife uh, likes to watch with me every year, and I acquiesce to watch it because it's a pretty good film, is uh, While You Were Sleeping with Sandra Bullock. Uh, pretty good film. But anyway, uh, as re- as regards Timberlake. He just didn't seem like a good actor to me. He did not play the role well, and he did not seem like a good actor. And another another one I was actually surprised at was John Goodman. Uh, though his character is important, and you couldn't do the movie without his character, I felt like his acting was really poor. Uh, his character was very unbelievable. John Goodman. He was the he's the uh, the guy that worked at the offices that was managing the scout. Right, process. right. Roseanne's husband. <laughs> in the okay, TV you know show, what? I, I, I liked him. I liked him in spite of his, um, you know, a few misgivings about him. I, I, you know, I didn't notice that his performance wasn't all that. Well. I didn't believe it, believe it for a second. It was, it seemed very bad. But, um, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion. This was make the world go round, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Then, well, why is the movie business so successful? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then just my final dislike when we got to the end of the film. Uh, I just ditching the cell phone in the dumpster 
please. Come on. That's so cliched and stupid and so many better ways to end the film. <laughs> Honestly, it was kind of lame. But I, I think that I understand why the writers chose to put it into the story. Because I just they were think lazy. That lazy or uh, I, I think that their excuse for it was they wanted to show that Mickey had become a better per- person because for Mickey to become a better person at that point in time of the story, they needed to demonstrate that she had grown to be a little bit more like Johnny. And it was something that Johnny would have done. Whereas for Johnny to create an arc and to come full circle and for his character to grow, he he needed to learn a few things from Mickey. So he did the mature thing at the end of the film and he, and he, he put his trust in the right people. You know what I mean? So, so I think that that was what they tried to do. They tried to demonstrate that Johnny's character develops because he makes a smart choice. And Mickey makes the right choice because she chooses family over career. Yeah. I mean, I can see your point, and, and I agree. I just I just wish that they hadn't done something so cliched. Like, uh, it was cliched. I, I would have been just as happy if she'd looked at her phone and stuck it back in her pocket and never looked at it again. That would have had the same effect. Um, and yeah, that, that's my, you know, that's how I feel about that. But, uh, I hope it's obvious though, that though we, you know, I think we spent more time on our likes and our dislikes. And I hope it's obvious that to me, the likes for this film way outweigh the dislikes. Well, we just got a few more minutes. I want to talk about one more thing. Okay, go ahead. All right, here it is. I'm going to open up the one can of worms that we appear to have about this movie. I think that the, the antagonists were terrible. And that is why I ultimately gave it, uh, well, okay, the climax I wasn't too crazy about either. But I, really, my biggest concern was that the antagonists were just utterly pathetic and hard to watch. And, and I feel like this is a plus because the film's not about the antagonists. You don't want to spend too much time worrying about the antagonists. You want, you want to know they're there and that they're driving the plot along and that they're stupid. And that's it. And, and so I felt like that worked very well. But you're saying that you wanted them to be the big bad uglies that are out to uh, take every every kid's every little kid's lunch or something. Oh no no no! I didn't need them to be you know Jafar from a Disney's Aladdin. <laughs> uh, I just needed them to be more interesting. You know, like Sid from Toy Story. He's a very believable bratty boy that just likes to destroy toys. He reminds me of one of my cousins. But. Then you have these guys, and they just, you know, they were cardboard cutouts. It was like the writers didn't know how to create a bad guy, so they made one up, and it wasn't inspired. That's that's what it is. That's what I'm thinking. Like, you know what? I think that the writers and probably the director, their heart was engrossed in the good guys, the the protagonists. They were rooting for them. But when it came to the bad guys, it was like they didn't really care. And so I think that if they... If they knew what was good to excel the story a little bit farther, they would have chosen a few other writers to focus on the the scenes and the performances of the the antagonists, so that they lived up to the uh, the story relating to the protagonists. It's like you know Lotso from Toy Story or Darth Vader uh, or. Um, you know, the uh, the crazy Nazis in Indiana Jones. You want them to be compelling bad guys and to some degree live up to the good guys so that you feel like when the good guys actually achieve something come the climax of the film, that it is a real victory. It is a really significant deal. 
And so if the villain doesn't live up to those expectations, then it feels like the good guys didn't really achieve anything great come the end of the story. So you want this film to be something entirely different than it is? <laughs> yes. No, that's, I, that's what I'm saying. No, um, I, you know, I, I don't think I really agree with you. I'm, I was fine with it the way it was because the, the story wasn't about villains. The story was about um, <laughs> uh, Gus and Mickey. And so th- there's really only one other thing I want to mention, and that was that the lack of CGI in this film was remarkable. And and not just the lack of CGI. Um, you may have even like like even in films that don't have a lot of CGI, they'll usually do something fun or cool with the opening credits or something. This is just straight white text with a a kind of a hard drop shadow for opening credits, and then that was it. I mean, there was no CGI in this film, and I actually found it refreshing. Uh, I, I I like that very much. So um, okay, so do you, you want to answer real quick why? The uh, well, I guess we already kind of talked about how the critics are bashing this film, but did we say it enough that this film really isn't a flop? I mean, the no. numbers are already showing it's being a success. Yeah, unless something comes out about the budget that they spent so much money on this film that they're never going to make it back. I I just don't see how you can call it a flop. I, I I can see how by today's standards, I can see how somebody might think that, but it's it's just not going to get the attention unfortunately that it deserves and i would certainly not call it a flop at 20 million um yeah i i don't quite understand what i'm seeing online about this film and i again i greatly enjoyed it and it will be something that i will watch occasionally um yeah oh you know one other thing that it might be is that oh you know all in all it's not the same kind of film that we expect to come from clint eastwood yeah, probably he makes not. a pretty. He makes some very powerful films. He's well. Anytime he's performed in films, he's made very powerful performances and very gritty dramas, very serious and very uh, philosophical or or thought provoking, very revolutionary to an extent. And Ethan at his attempt, which I think uh, floundered, with um, J. Edgar Hoover's movie that he uh, directed last year. Again, he was trying for something that was a whole new level of creative, deep-thinking drama. And um, if, you, if you went into this film as perhaps a reviewer thinking that you were going to get that kind of attention to detail, then you probably had not watched the trailer. But uh, I can see why you would still assume that that's the kind of film you would get out of Clint Eastwood. Mm. And I could see why that that would dampen your ultimate impression of the film. All right. What do you say we drop the mics and walk away? All right. We're done. All right. Have a good night, TJ. <laughs> hang on. Hang on. I was being metaphorical. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, hey, so next week, uh, because Cloud Atlas is on the horizon, uh, made by the Wachowskis, uh, the Wachowski siblings, <laughs> I used to say brothers, um, we are going to review The Matrix. I've been looking forward to doing this. Because The Matrix, unless something has changed, I, it's been a little over a year since I've seen it, unless something has changed, um, I, I don't see how I can give this film any less than five stars. I'll just give you a little preview into my thinking on this film. Uh, so I, we're, next week we're going to review The Matrix, and I assume you'll take a much more reasonable position than five stars, Joseph. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> if I have to. Yes. So uh, look forward to that. Um the, the, uh, I hope, and I hope this will, uh, because I know that Corey, uh, for instance, who wrote our review on Looper, likes uh, sci-fi. I hope that uh, this will thrill him and tickle him pink. So, <laughs> all right. Well, Joseph, uh, if people want to find out more about you online or fo- keep up with you or follow you, uh, where can they do that at? 
Right, if they want to catch with me, uh, catch up to me socially, they can catch me on uh, Facebook. Just go to josephdarnell.com and you'll find me on Facebook. Wonderful little thing. You can redirect any given URL that you own to your Facebook profile if you care to. And so I've done that as a courtesy to you. So find me there. Awesome. And if you want to catch me on Twitter, because you're one of those people like me that prefers Twitter over Facebook, then you've got a good head on your shoulders. And so you'll want to find me on Twitter. And I'm uh, my handle is just Joseph Darnell. So I'm Joseph Darnell. Uh, so twitter.com slash Joseph Darnell. And then if you want to get my personal site, I write tech news, design, culture pieces, uh, things about Apple and tech at josephdarnell.com. Uh, and of course, no, I, lastly. I think you do that at jivingjackalope.com. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm on a roll here. Yeah, jivingjackalope. I am the jiving jackalope. That's why I said josephdarnell.com. I guess that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> so then if, lastly, we ought to say... I mean, after all, we are talking about movies here. That I also write for moviebyte.com too. You do. And I write really good stuff on there, TJ. Your stuff is awesome, Joseph. Thanks. I appreciate that. That's so generous of you. All right. Well, if you want to keep up with me online, uh, I do also prefer Twitter. You can uh, follow me. I am uh, TJ Draper Pro on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash TJ Draper. And I have a website, which is being sadly neglected while I pour all my lifeblood and time and energy into Movie Bite. But if you want to go there and read some things I post about once every three or four years, you can go to buzzingpixel.com. Uh, and that just about wraps it up. Uh, this was a lot of fun, Joseph. I, I enjoyed watching these films, and uh, I uh, enjoyed reviewing them with you. Yeah, and I think a double feature episode didn't you know turn out half bad. Nope. All right. Well, we will uh, talk to you next week, Joseph. All right, TJ. Have a good night. All right, you too. Bye.